Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. If you turn there, we'll get ready for that message. I'm sure you've noticed it before that so often when Dr. Billy Graham will give an altar call at the end of a crusade, he will turn to the cameras or to the crowd and will say to them as sort of a parting message, and be sure that you go to church next Sunday. (laughs) He wants to invite them to participate in a local assembly, going to church. We're a funny culture, though. We have all sorts of reasons and excuses why not to. It's too cold, it's too big, it's too loud, it's too whatever. I heard about a guy who was late for his golf appointment on Sunday morning. All his buddies were on the first tee. He was late. Finally, he showed up. He expressed his apologies. He said, well, I told my wife that this Sunday I'd flip a coin. Heads, I play golf. Tails, I go to church. He said, guys, I'm late because it took 43 times of me flipping that coin before it came up heads. But aside from that, even coming to a church assembly like this is no guarantee that one connects with God or that one connects with spiritual truth. It's very possible, in fact, to be present in body but absent from the Lord, absent in heart, absent in mind, virtually asleep. This morning, we look at a very unusual story about the first guy who fell asleep in church. You'll be introduced to him in a moment as we step into the scene. His name is Eutychus. It's an interesting name because it means good fortune. And yet he runs into a string of bad luck. I'll explain. He suffers the misfortune of falling asleep on Paul the Apostle. And the second misfortune of having Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, there to record it. So that everyone reading the Bible from here on would see his name as the first guy who fell asleep in church. We see that falling asleep in church in this story can be very dangerous. In fact, uh, and I've done some study on this. I was on the internet. There's not a whole lot of studies out there about people who do this. For obvious reasons, I don't think people want to admit it, but there was one study that asked if people had fallen asleep in church. 71% who took uh, participated in this said, no, but sometimes I really want to. <laughs> now, I, I mentioned it can be dangerous. I came across this. Back in the year 1646, on February 28th, a man by the name of Roger Scott was placed on trial in Massachusetts for, you guessed it, falling asleep in church. That's, boy, things have changed, especially in Massachusetts. (laughs) And did you know that during the Puritan era in New England, that the ushers took this very seriously? They had ways of dealing with people who fell asleep in church. This is true. Ushers were given a long pole, and affixed to one end was a very long, sharp needle. 
I kid you not. Somebody was caught falling asleep in a Puritan service. The usher would silently, stealthily, and suddenly jab the worshiper back. Things have changed. And that's good. Mad Magazine came up with a little list of top reasons that people fall asleep in church. Their excuses are, here's one, isn't this the healing service for narcolepsy? A second one is, well, the church espresso machine is on the blink. A third, I was simply entering into the Sabbath rest. Get this one. Well, excuse me for staying up all Saturday night in prayer. (laughs) Yeah, right. Another, I was getting in touch with my inner Bible study. And finally, I always snore when I'm slain in the Spirit. Now, let me give you the setting. Paul is on the way back to Jerusalem, and he stops at a place that you're familiar with. He stops in the city, the coastal city of Troas. You remember that town. It was the place where he got a vision from a man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Troas was a very pivotal area for Paul's future ministry. He goes back. He spends exactly one week, seven days in that city. And he is there long enough to take the weekend church service. It's a very peculiar service, as we will read in Scripture, beginning in verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, this is Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I'm reading it slowly just to let that sink in. This is a long, long service. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But... Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten, get this, and talked a long while, he's back at it, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were really happy. So we have a story here about a devoted congregation and a drowsy Christian named Eutychus. And we're going to look at both of those. It's a fun story. It really is. And then look at a deeper concern as a segue off that. There's something noteworthy about this, and and here's why. Here we have in Acts chapter 20 one of the first descriptions on record of the inner workings of an early church service. For that reason alone, it deserves our attention. And we notice that they were together. It tells us on the first day of the week, that Sunday, they had come together to break bread. Now, did you know that there are some Bible students who believe they have even pinpointed the exact house they were at in Troas? It's because when Paul wrote a letter from Rome to Timothy, 
This is what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. So these Bible students concur that this took place on the third level of a large, spacious estate owned by a guy named Carpus who lived at Troas. There the church gathered, and there they were taking communion together. They were breaking bread, having the Lord's Supper. Now probably this was the agape feast. Have you heard that term? An agape feast was a pretty typical early church gathering where people from the community would gather together, have what we would call a potluck, Some don't like that. They call it a covered dish, supper, whatever. They brought food and they ate it together. Then they would go back into the house. They would share the Word of God together. They would take communion together and have a time of praising the Lord. It was the agape feast. Now this takes place on a Sunday. That's noteworthy. The first day of the week is a Sunday. I want you to note that they're not meeting on the Sabbath. It's a Gentile city. They're far away from Jerusalem. And you'll start to see throughout the book of Acts and in the New Testament this reference to the church gathering on the first day of the week. Why? Because they were commemorating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I make the distinction. I don't think it's really a big deal when you meet. But I bring it up because some people do make it a huge issue of when they meet. You've got to meet on the Sabbath. You can't break the Sabbath. Well, did you know that nobody changed the Sabbath? I say that because people accuse Christians of changing the Sabbath Sabbath historically. You Christians came along and changed the Sabbath to Sunday. Nobody changed the Sabbath. Point is, they weren't meeting on the Sabbath. And here's why. I'll give you four reasons. Number one, because the Sabbath was given in part of the covenant of Moses to the children of Israel. Number two, nobody even kept the Sabbath until the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 20. Number three, when the council of Jerusalem met together and gave instructions to the churches, they said, keep yourself from blood, things strangled, sexual immorality. They didn't say, oh, and make sure that you keep the Sabbath. And number four, because in the New Testament, there is never a command given to Christians to observe the Sabbath, nor is there a caution against breaking the Sabbath. In fact, if there's a caution at all, it's in saying it's not a big deal. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance he says, is of Christ. I've always loved what Romans 14 tells the early church and us. Paul writes, One man esteems one day of the week over all the other days. Another man esteems all of the other days alike. And then he concludes, Let each one be persuaded in his own mind. So, Which is the right day to worship? Somebody might say Saturday. Another would chime in, no, Sunday. Others of us say, well, I like worshiping God Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then we get to start all over again. And here's why they did that. 
This is why the early church met on the first day. Whereas the seventh day commemorates a finished creation, God rested on the seventh day, the first day represents a finished redemption. So they met on the first day of the week. They were together. Something else to notice. They were tired. Now, how do I get that out of this text? Because I read, they met on the first day of the week. Now, folks, a weekend in Troas was different than a weekend in Albuquerque. And I'll explain. In our country, we have a five-day work week, and you're off Saturday and Sunday, typically for people. In the ancient world, not just the Jewish world, but in the ancient world, it was a six-day work week. And Sunday, the first day of the week, almost all over the empire, people worked. So picture it. You have a congregation meeting on Sunday. They can't meet Sunday morning. They're all working. So they meet Sunday evening. It's after a long day of work that they've gathered together. I had a fellow come up to me some time ago who attends first service Sunday morning, and he said, Skip, I just want you to know, if you ever see me nodding out, it's not because I'm not interested, but I work all night long, and then I get off of work, and I drive here to the church for the 8 o'clock service. And when he told me that, I thought, well, praise the Lord. I mean, a lot of people would say, I'm too tired. I just got off work. I'm not even coming. He at least comes. I think that's precious. And by the way, as I read my Bible, God can speak to people when they're asleep. I'm not advocating come here and bring a pillow. (laughs) But you remember Samuel was a boy sleeping in the temple, and that's when God spoke to him and gave him direction for his future. Okay, picture the scene here. It's evening time. It's after a long day at work. It's after an agape feast, so they had a nice leisurely meal. Add to that a few more factors. The crowd is probably larger than usual. Some can't even get seats. Eutychus has to sit in a windowsill. It's larger because Paul's in town. They're in an upper room. Heat does what? Rises. Also, verse 8, there were many lamps. It was very well lit. One of the reasons why is early Christians were accused of all sorts of illegal things that never happened. But to prove the point that they weren't illegal, they would light the place really well. So there were many lamps. A better translation would be oil torches. So as the oxygen level decreases, the heat rises, and people get very tired. So here's the scene. It's hot. It's stuffy. It's humid. They're by the seacoast. And it's a recipe for falling asleep in church. So if you ever wonder, why do they turn the air condition on so much in this place? You've discovered our secret. (laughs) That's really not why. We try to give it a nice even feel, but it feels that way sometimes. So they're together. It's after uh, a day of laboring, so they're tired. And it's also after a night of listening. We understand from reading this that Paul doesn't preach a short sermon. He's pretty long-winded. It says he spoke until midnight. I'm sure they thought, hey, this, it's Paul. This is Paul the Apostle. This is really the first and last contact he's going to have with this fledgling church in Troas. But bear with me a moment. Don't fall asleep on me here. Notice something about what we're looking at in this worship service. And I want you to notice that the sermon 
occupied the main portion of the meeting. It wasn't coffee and donuts. It wasn't music. It was the Word that occupied the bulk. In fact, it wasn't one sermon, was it? It was two sermons. And both of them were long. One from sunset till midnight. They were interrupted by a death, followed by a resurrection, followed by a second sermon. But that is the bulk of this meeting. Several years ago, I had a privilege for the first time of going to the country of India. And I'd always wanted to go. And I I approached a Sunday morning meeting very humbly because I knew the quality of believer that exists in that country. And as people were walking in, I was told by my host that these people, you'll notice, are all walking to church. A few are bicycling, most are walking. And he told me, Skip, they're walking, many of them, for hours to get here. And my host said, I'm telling you that because they don't want a little tiny devotional. They want a message. So don't be afraid to keep it long because they've come here for a long ways. So I gave a message. I added a little bit. You know, it's easy for a preacher to do. We can talk for a long time. And I ended. And my interpreter said, you're not done yet. You only just begun. And I spoke again. Then they wanted to take a break for lunch and come back and have another message. Paul would have loved it. Well, look at verse 7. It says, he spoke. Now, there it says he spoke. It's an interesting word, dialogomai. It's where we get the term dialogue from. So, uh, perhaps Paul spoke And then perhaps there were questions and answers from the crowd in that upper room, or he was dialoguing with some of the other leadership in their midst, hammering out hard theological issues. But then if you go down to verse 11 where he is speaking, it's another word, even though it's virtually the same in English. This word in the Greek is homileo, where we get the term homiletics. This is more of a formal message sermon that he gives. But here is my point. The priority of the church at Troas is very similar here to the priorities of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that tells us, And they gave themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. They gather on the first day of the week, and they preach the word. I think people are getting drowsy. Even with Paul. Now, you've got to believe that Paul was a gifted communicator, right? He'd been a rabbinical student and a rabbi and now a preacher with hostile crowds. So I think he knew what it was like to speak to a crowd and hold their attention. But you know what? Listening to sermons can be hard. Amen? Who said amen? <laughs> and it's harder to listen to some over others. Some people make it very hard to listen. And you know, if if you're a preacher of the Word and you are hearing this message, you don't have a right to be boring and then get down on people for falling asleep. There's an old saying that says, the mind cannot retain what the seat cannot endure. (laughs) Keep that in mind. True story. The scene was Florida Bible Institute several years ago. 
The teacher, Dr. William Evans, some of you recognize that name. He wrote the book, Great Doctrines of the Bible, a must-read, I think, for every believer. Great Doctrines of the Bible. William Evans wrote the book and is teaching his class, Great Doctrines of the Bible. In class that morning, that morning in the front row are three notable students. Billy Graham. Next to him, Roy Gustafson. Some of you will remember he used to speak here before he went to heaven quite frequently. And third, Charles Macy, a friend and classmate. Everybody's awake listening to Dr. Evans' lecture except Charles Macy. This is what he's doing. <laughs> Snoring, head down in class. This only serves to anger the teacher. William Evans turns to Roy Gustafson and says, Wake that boy up! And Roy, in his typical cocky manner, said, Dr. Evans, you put him to sleep, you wake him up! (laughs) Paul puts this guy to sleep. Let it be noted. So we have a devoted congregation. Now we look at this drowsy Christian. In a window, verse 9 sat a certain young man named Eutychus. He probably gave up his seat for somebody older who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. My heart goes out to him. Again, I think this poor guy, he's worked all day, he's a young guy, falls asleep, His name means good fortune? Hardly. Reminds me of the advertisement in a newspaper I think I've told you about once before that said, lost dog with three legs, blind eye, missing right ear, tail broken, recently injured, answers to the name Lucky. Here's Mr. Lucky sitting in the window and falling asleep. Now he's called in verse 9 a young man. The term neonias in verse 9 means somebody typically up to age 40. Doesn't that make some of you feel good? I'm 40 and I'm considered in the Bible a young man. Ah, don't get too excited. If you go down to verse 12, it says young man again, but he uses a very different word, pais, which means a lad, a boy, typically from 9 to 14 years of age. So if you're going to picture somebody in your mind, picture a young teenager, who had given up his seat in this stuffy, hot, humid upper room and moves to the window. There's a little fresh air, but he gets tired. Now, he gets tired. But the tense of the verb here indicates he was gradually overcome despite his desire to stay awake. In other words, he was nodding out and waking up and nodding out, and he tried to fight it. Finally, sleep won. And he fell, and there was a loud thud outside, right? Everybody gasped. And they rushed over to the window. And Paul runs downstairs. And this is what we read. Paul went down, fell on him. Why did he do that? I don't know, but do you remember in the Old Testament, Elijah three times prostrated himself over the sun of the woman of Zarephath till he rose from the dead. Maybe he was thinking of that. He thought, I don't know how to raise somebody from the dead, but I know how Elijah did it. And embracing him, he said, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. That word trouble is the same basic word as the same... Look at verse 1. 
I'm going to take you back to something we haven't read yet. Notice it says, after the uproar. See the word uproar? It's basically the same word, uproar and trouble. In other words, what I picture in my mind is this whole group of people. I don't know if you've ever been in the Middle East or heard of a Middle East death whale. But it's notable. I think people were just wailing and mourning. And Paul says, shh, don't cause an uproar, a stir, a trouble. He's alive. He's alive. So he's healed miraculously. And you know what? Now everybody's awake. Right? Nobody's going to fall asleep the rest of the message. Paul takes advantage of it and starts preaching again. (laughs) Now when he had come up, broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Boy, is adrenaline pumping in that room. Time to go back to church and hear another sermon. So that's the story. A devoted congregation, a drowsy Christian. Typical. Happens. Now let me spend the next few minutes with a deeper concern. Over the years, I have an interesting vantage point from being up here. I get to watch crowds. And I get to notice this happening. I get to see it. I know where they sit. (laughs) But I also know there's lots of reasons that people can fall asleep. It could simply be they had a rough night. They worked all night. The kids were up all night. They could have some kind of medication issues that keep them up at night. It could be a form of narcolepsy. Or it could be, I just happened to be stinking boring that day. I can live with that. That's really not my concern. I'm not really concerned about people who fall asleep in church. Here's my concern. is people whose bodies are awake, but their souls are asleep. That's what I'm concerned about. Much more than people falling asleep. I, in fact, I'd say, did you get a good rest? Good. God bless you. What concerns me is when people will plop a body in a church, but have no real care about their eternal souls. Now allow me to walk through briefly three conditions that I see. They're spiritual conditions. I'll couch them in sleep disorder language. A coma, sleepwalking, and chronic fatigue. There are those who have a coma existence. They're in a spiritual coma. Now you know a coma is a profound sense of unconsciousness. It's where a person doesn't respond normally to pain or to light. People can be in a spiritual coma. That is, they've never really been awake. They're never awakened. They have no real care for their soul. But they'll come to church and they'll sit there. But they have no intention of changing or being awakened into the light. They're in a spiritual coma. They're unsaved. Paul spoke about this type of an individual in Corinthians as the natural man or the man without the spirit. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's interesting. 
This same person can be wide awake in a movie, wide awake over a business transaction, go to a bar, go to the golf course, and be engaged, but have no care for eternal spiritual matters. They're in a coma. They hear the word. They hear prayers. They hear congregation singing. I grew up as an unsaved churchgoer. I went to church every Sunday. I was unsaved as a churchgoer. And Charles Spurgeon writes, I believe a very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. There was one study that measured lifestyles of churchgoers. This is fascinating. And examined four other areas of their lives besides church attendance, family, business, leisure, etc. And in all of their study, they determined that 19% of Americans who are churchgoers are religiously committed. That is, they practice their faith regularly. They call that religiously committed. Whereas 51% are either modestly committed or barely committed. This is 51% of churchgoers. Now, we might wonder, why do they come to church then? Well, they must derive some comfort from being around spiritual people. Or doing spiritual things, or just being religious. They must have some feeling like, I went to church today, aren't I good? Now, I want to say this in answering why do they come to church? I don't know. I'm glad they do, however. Because over time, I've seen many of them. It might be years, but I've seen many of them. The Lord get a hold of their heart for whatever reason, and they come to a relationship with Him. They wake out of their coma. Second condition, sleepwalking. I found out that sleepwalking, medically it's called somnambulism. It's a real condition. It affects 18% of the world's population. Sleepwalkers are dangerous people. Their eyes are wide open. They can navigate their surroundings. They can get up and bathe and dress and eat and even drive. But they're technically asleep. They're dangerous, and we're told, if you know somebody who's a sleepwalker, don't go up to them and shake them. Say, wake up! Gently coax them back to bed. A few uh, months ago, we had a young man preach here, Levi Lusco. He used to be our youth pastor. He now pastors up in Montana. He's a legitimate sleepwalker. I was with him in Jerusalem. He got up in the middle of the night. He was technically asleep, but he's walking down the hallway. And he goes from his floor in Jerusalem to the hotel lobby, uh, to the elevator, goes down 19 floors, door opens, he walks out of it, he's in the lobby, and he wakes up in his underwear. (laughs) That's all he has on. And he realizes what's happening. So there's only one thing to do. You walk up to the desk, nonchalantly ask for a room key, and he went back up, went to bed. One time down in Belize, he was sleepwalking. He jumped out of a window onto the lawn that was out. So it can be a very dangerous situation. Here's my point. Spiritually, a person can be sleepwalking. They're navigating their surroundings. They look like Christians. They look normal. They carry Bibles. They sing. But they're not really awakened. 
They're sleepwalking. You know when Samson was being lulled to sleep by Delilah? Outwardly, he looked fine, looked strong, handsome, virile. And she coaxed him to sleep, and he took that fatal nap until finally she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. The Bible says, he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as before and as at other times shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Last final sleep. Now he did wake up and one final blaze of glory, but it was a life wasted. There's a third condition. I want to end with this. Spiritual fatigue. There is a problem called chronic fatigue syndrome. Hypersomnia. It's a person who after a night's sleep is tired and takes a nap and is just as tired and can't seem to get refreshed no matter what they do. They're always fatigued. There's some of us, ladies and gentlemen, who have become so familiar with spiritual things that we're bored. We've just been a Christian so long. We've heard all the sermons, all the Bible. We know everything. We've sung all the songs. We've been involved in ministry. And this especially affects those of us who are in full-time ministry. Or we volunteer a lot. But especially those who work at church staffs or are professional Christians. They become fatigued we can become like the priests in Malachi's day who offered up lame and blind sacrifices. And while they were doing it, you know what they said? They said, oh, what a weariness. Oh, this is boring. We've done this before. It's very possible to get in that kind of a situation, to become calloused. Gordon MacDonald writes this. Listen carefully to this. There is nothing so deadening to the divine as a habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. Did you get that? Nothing so deadening to the divine as a habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. We're not if affected inwardly as much. We just sort of go through the motions, make sure the service is nice and the songs are good and, and uh, the flyers are passed out and people are there on time and the announcements are made. But what about the inside? Now, those who are fatigued with church spiritually, they might not tell you what the sermon was about but could tell you exactly how many tiles are in the ceiling because they've counted them. They will plan their week. They'll write letters during the message. They'll draw pictures of the pastor. I've gotten a few. Worse, worse, they'll sit there and judge others. It's come to that. They'll sit there and say, I don't like that song, leader. I didn't like that song. That's where it degenerates to. Now, here's something to note. Eutychus falls asleep in a place where there was lots of light and lots of heat. See where I'm getting at with that? If the only place we shine our lights is a church, if the only place we're on fire is a church, the only expression of our Christianity is a church, you're going to get drowsy. So often we'll have altar calls at church, and I love them, and we might have one in a moment. But let this be a wake-up call. An alarm that goes off and says, are you fatigued? If you're fatigued 
if you've been a Christian very long, you and I have to come to church differently. And here's how we come to church. We have to come to church saying, I know this song already. Now I'm going to sing deliberately and think about the words of that song and enter in and sing this to the Lord as if it were the first time I ever did it. And we have to come to church and say, I've heard this passage before, but I'm going to not only listen to it, I'm going to take notes on it and apply it to my life. We have, there has to be a deliberateness about our attendance. If you're sleepwalking, you have to make a break with that sin. Cut it off. You're hiding it by going through the motions. Number three, if you're in a coma, you haven't been awakened, but you just feel good coming to church. You feel spiritual. It's time to wake up out of that sleep, come to a relationship with Christ, and care about your soul. Let's pray for that. Our Heavenly Father. And would you stand as we pray? Let's just... uh, In fact, yawn. Stretch a minute. I won't be offended. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. Stand in your presence and ask your Spirit to search our hearts, to try us. You already know us. You You know all about us. You know if we're hiding something. You know if we're really awake. If we're sleepwalking, if we're fatigued, we've just gone through the weariness for years of church and the Bible, and we need a fresh touch of your Spirit. Help us. Touch us. And Father, finally, for those who up till this morning have been in a coma, but they're starting to become awakened, they see their need for Jesus Christ, not just being a churchgoer, not just being religious, not with just dealing with the outsides of holy things. This morning they have a realization, a hunch, right now in their own core of their being, that they need to come to Christ and make a choice to become not a listener, but a disciple, a follower, a learner, one who lives in the constant reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we pray that they will come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.